Our first scripture reading this morning comes from Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 11 through 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 32. Hear now the word of the Lord. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for the building up of others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ... God forgave you. So I realize that I have spent a lot of time in my life around other Christians. I was an avid youth group kid going to all of the retreats and events and service projects that I could. In college, I was active in a campus ministry where I later worked for a year. I also worked in a coffee shop that was very much a part of the Texas A&M Christian bubble where you'd find camp counselors, people doing their daily Bible journaling, and my personal favorite, the hip, aloof, bearded guys who sat outside smoking pipes and discussing theology, like men of old. I learned a lot during these times, seeing the best and the worst of church culture. There's one undeniable truth that I learned during those years. Christians can say some weird stuff. Some of those things are silly and harmless cliches, like overusing the words authentic or blessed when describing truly mundane kinds of things. But there are other things that are far more significant to the Christian life that are obscured by the language that we use, things that we are completely desensitized to ourselves because we're just accustomed to those kinds of phrases. We hear them all the time. But these things can be confusing at best to people who are just getting started. Or worse, they might create barriers to the newly forming faith of young Christians, if not explained. The story of Jesus is a strange one, after all, dealing with things like miracles, resurrection from the dead, and a holy ghost that's supposed to go with you and influence your life. This is weird stuff, guys, but we're used to it. This morning's scripture is based around one of those particularly weird Christian phrases. Put off 
your old self and put on your new self. In a lot of ways, when you look beyond the strangeness of that saying, when you look at the rest of this passage, what you find is a straightforward commentary on how we're supposed to live and what our conduct should look like. But we can't just look past that weird saying. It's the main premise of the whole argument, the bedrock on which everything else is built. You are taught to put off your old self and to put on your new self, it says. Therefore, you should behave in these ways. This is more than just a code of conduct. The Bible is not just a rule book, and Christianity is not a legalistic religion. Rather, it's a transformative religion built on the work that God does rather than the things that we do. So in order to understand what it is that's happening in this change of self, we have to look at the difference between who we were and who God is changing us to be. And in order to do that, we have to first ask the question, what is God's desire for us? Well, if you think back to our first scripture, you'll remember it clearly. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Jeremiah states it plainly. God wants us to experience prosperity, hope, and future closeness with him. This is a beautiful, reassuring verse, often cited in times of trial or hardship or when someone needs hope, and for good reason. This is a hopeful passage. But if we render this a mere platitude or charming saying, we're stripping it of its deeper meaning and missing out on what is, in my opinion, a much more powerful message. See, this is promising deliverance and salvation before anything else. The people of Israel were living in exile under Babylonian rule when this was written, under a foreign king and far from their homeland. The prophet Jeremiah wrote to the Israelites with the commandment that they were to go and settle down, to go about their lives, marrying and working and having children, because that was how they could find peace for now. It was a realistic, down-to-earth kind of message. Make a good life for yourselves and for your children, because this is just how things are at the moment. But he also made it clear that God did not intend to leave his people there forever, which is where this passage kicks in. You know my plans, God says. Remember, I will bring you back home to me. And that is when you can truly prosper. The most prosperity that they could know under Babylon was nothing compared to the prosperity that they were promised in the presence of God. God's plan for us is the same as it was for the Israelites because it's the same for all of his creation. He wants salvation. Now this is another one of those words that is critically important to the Christian faith, yet so often left unexplained because we assume that people will just understand. We need to be saved. 
And we announce as much when we proclaim the good news of the gospel. But we can't forget to say what it is that we need to be saved from. Maybe you've heard that what we need to be saved from is hell, from eternal torment and pain. Or maybe that we need to be saved from this world's corrupting influence. Maybe you've even heard that what you really need to be saved from is yourself. And talk about a confusing saying. But in truth, Scripture tells us that none of those individually encapsulates all that we need to be saved from. Scripture tells us that the salvation we have in Christ isn't from any of those things, but is rather from the powers of sin and death themselves. It makes sense when you consider sin to be the actions and inclinations that separate us from God, because as Jeremiah said, prosperity is found in closeness with God. We thrive and enjoy deep happiness and fulfillment in the presence of the Lord. So as long as we live as captives of sin, we are unable to experience those things. We can't know happiness or wholeness or fulfillment while we're captives. So what about death then? How do we be freed from death? When the Israelites were living in Babylon, they were subject to the rules and laws of Babylon. The regulations and guidelines there were different from in Israel. And that was just how things were. It was the reality of the situation. In the same way as we live as fallen people in a fallen world, we are subject to its rules. And one of those rules is that all things die. But to hear the good news that God will deliver us is to know that we are citizens of a kingdom where death has no power. Our promised salvation is from sin so that we can be close with God and from death because it has no place at all in God's kingdom. Now here's the thing. You don't have to be particularly well-versed in theology to know that being freed from sin isn't quite as simple as that. The desire to place other things, other wants and pleasures ahead of God, and as a result to further separate from him, is a stubborn beast. And it doesn't immediately vanish when we come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. It's said that everyone, though born of God in an instant, grows in slow degrees. When we cast off the old self, we're talking about that beautiful moment in which Believing in Christ, we are saved from the guilt of our sins and restored to favor with God. I know this is something that I say week after week, but it's because it's so true and so central to the gospel. By the grace of God, you can be freed from the burdens of your past, from anything that you've done before and anywhere that you've come from before. Our God is more powerful than any of those things. And he can and will give you new and better life if you trust in him. You can cast off the person you were before as easily as you would a coat. And then you can walk without that heavy load, without that burden forevermore. But casting off the guilt isn't enough. That's not the end of this. 
Without the guilt of our old ways, we're presented with a fresh start, a clean slate from which to move forward. It would be a shame to take a gift like that and squander it by going right back to the same old actions and attitudes. But another part of the good news of Christ is that in him we are also set free from those actions, from those attitudes, from those tendencies, so that now we have the option to pursue righteousness where before we didn't even have that. It wouldn't have been possible. When we fail, which we will, we still have God's grace to enable us to repent, to stand back up and continue striving after him. The rest of our scripture is descriptive of what a transformed life looks like. Freed from the bonds of sin and able to pursue God, this is one of those passages that helps us find our bearings and know which way to go. Interestingly, it does so via a charming little saying, something you might imagine your grandparents telling you. Don't give the devil a foothold. It's in the Bible, so it has to be profound, right? In truth, I think it's probably about on par with something like idle hands are the devil's plaything. If we think about that saying, we quickly know how true it is. Just look at literally any teenage boy who gets bored for too long. I was a teenage boy not too long ago, and I remember all too well how appealing recklessness got when there was nothing better to do. I know so many stories of dumb things that bored teenagers did. I could go on for hours putting rocks and weights on a frisbee, pouring olive oil down a freshly waxed hallway, and doing their best to replicate the Olympic curling team, sliding down staircases on mattresses, potato cannons, fireworks, the list goes on. Idle hands are the devil's plaything. Now, the whole point of that saying is not that idleness necessarily causes people to do bad or dangerous things, but rather that it's better to avoid situations that create the opportunity for them altogether. I think we can approach this other saying, don't give the devil a foothold in the same sort of way. As we strive after God, our attitudes can significantly impact our faith Paul actually gets pretty practical here, identifying a few things that are particularly important, a few things that are critical if we're going to prevent ourselves from even having the occasion to fall into sin. First, that we not let anger dominate us or determine what we do. Second, that we not let bitterness or malice overwhelm our lives. And as an affirmative instruction, that we should Trust in the Holy Spirit as we go. Anger is like a plague, honestly. An angry person lashes out, creating hostile situations that make other people react and fall into anger themselves. How many of us have spoken out of anger or frustration and said something hurtful, something that we later regret? I bet all of us have many times. But don't justify those things. Don't give the devil a foothold. James chapter 1 says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
When we linger in anger rather than pushing back against it, when we let it grow within us rather than finding a healthy outlet, when we dwell in it, or worse, indulge it rather than controlling it, we push our neighbors away and stand in the way of the love that Christ commands us to have. When you say something cruel to someone, does it reveal the deep love of our Savior? When you put someone down, does it tell them that God values them and wants to lift them up closer to him? No, and for us as Christians, this can be a really dangerous and damaging thing to people who see us as representatives of our faith. Well, bitterness is the same, serving as an internal counterpart to anger's externality. If your anger causes you to lash out, your bitterness distorts the way that you see the world altogether. It can prevent you from seeing the good things that God has given us, the blessings and endless mercies, and it can make you forget the grace that you've been shown. It prepares a base from which anger can grow along with rage and malice because it's hard to treat people well when you can't see their value. It's hard to think beyond yourself at all when you don't see the value in anything. But opposite these attitudes to avoid is one that we can and should embrace wholeheartedly. Stronger than the need to avoid anger or bitterness is the need to embrace trust. When we talk about pushing out the attributes of our old selves, we think about the things that we need to remove from our lives in order to make space for what we're becoming. Yet being filled with trust for God and His Holy Spirit can serve to drive out those old ways as well, more powerfully in many cases. As the Spirit becomes a bigger part of your life, it leaves less space for temptation and the power of sin to work its way back in. The more disciplined you are in your faith, the fewer opportunities there are to fall prey to your old self. And as surely as we're called to move beyond our old ways, we're also called to put on a new self, to fully assume our new identity in Christ and conform our every action and attitude to his image. We're called to speak with kindness and compassion, only saying things that build one another up in the pursuit of holiness. That's not to say you have to affirm everything someone believes or says or does, but rather that your response should seek to bring them closer to God above all else. We should be motivated by genuine care for the souls of the people around us, and any moral correction that we give should be simply because it might help a person draw nearer to God. But we have to go beyond merely saying nice things. We have to forgive one another. This is central to Jesus's message, yet it's so difficult to do. You find it all throughout the New Testament as being critical to the Christian life. And yet it's one thing that we stumble over time and time again. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgives you. Don't underestimate how significant how big of a call that is. 
Remember, we did nothing to earn Christ's favor or forgiveness, yet still he died for us while we were yet sinners. And we are called to show that same forgiveness and love to one another, to the people around us, to our neighbors and those in our communities, to love without having any reason to do so other than Christ. And finally, we're called to put on righteousness in everything that you do, put on righteousness. When you find yourself frustrated or angry, remember your new self and put on righteousness in your words, your actions, your attitudes, and your beliefs in every moment and with your whole being. Remember that God is working in your life to bring you prosperity that you never could have imagined. Prosperity is not about wealth or comfort after all, but rather about the happiness and perfection that can come only through a relationship with Christ our King. So as we go out from here today, let us cast off the burdens of our old selves. Remember to put on righteousness once again with every passing moment and to be covered by the new self that Jesus Christ has made possible for us. Amen.